Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, yes, this season is over. But here's one last thing about Utopia. We did a live event in New York City at the 92nd Street Y with the New York Times' Katie Weaver. Katie has written, I kid you not, some of my favorite articles of all time. Like her story about a trip to the glitter factory to see how glitter gets made, and her GQ profile of Dwayne Johnson is just my favorite piece of celebrity writing. Maybe ever? But at our talk at the 92nd Street Y, Katie wanted to go over a very particular utopia that she grew up going to. Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Ahead of our conversation, Katie and I both read a book called Married to the Mouse by Richard E. Fogelsong, which is full of just wild details about Disney's utopian visions, which we may or may not have remembered incorrectly on stage. Apologies if you're listening, Richard E. Fogelsong. But the themes present in the establishment of Disney World really reflected the other ideas that we've already covered in this series. This just kind of ties the room together, if you will. So here's my conversation with Katie Weaver, just as a reminder that the discussion about utopias and the failures and successes inherent in them is an ongoing one. Hello. (laughs) Um, Welcome to our book club. (laughs) We read a book for you. Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, it's, it's really exciting that um, so many people are interested in talking about utopias and have maybe listened to the podcast. Um, but I wanted, I don't know, there are a lot of podcasts out there. Like, I wouldn't blame you if you just came without listening to the podcast. Um, but I wanted to start out by sharing a little anecdote that didn't make it into the story of Oneida. Uh, one of my favorite books that we read for this series was the book about Oneida by Ellen Whalen Smith. It's called Oneida. And it's so beautiful because it not only talks about this one utopia, but it really like puts it in context and talks about um, lots of different American utopias in the 1800s, which was kind of like a utopian heyday. And in one part, she talks about the origin of the word con man, which comes from confidence man, who was a man. There was a guy, and his name was William Thompson. And he was arrested in New York City in 1849 because he would come up to strangers in New York City and like chat them up and walk with them a little bit. And then he would say, do you have the confidence to trust a stranger with your watch? And everyone was like, oh, of course. Like, <laughs> you are now my friend. And so they would hand him their confidence and their watch and he would just walk away. And that was his grift. And... <laughs> No, it's really interesting because, like, in his arrest, he became kind of this boogeyman because everyone freaked out. They were like, who are these lone men roving around the city, undetached from, like, family or community? They have no moral compass, and they have this, like, hypnotic control over people. 
And then, lo and behold, like in the late 1800s, only like 50 years later, that archetype gets totally switched around, and we like, he becomes the American salesman. He becomes like <laughs> the 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 what I guess we would now call like the influencer. And he <laughs> he was how to make friends and influence people. And I think this, you know, the reason this came up in the Oneida book, and I think the reason that this is recurrent in like talking about utopias, is oftentimes. They are led by, not always men, but usually men, um, extremely charismatic people who are bewitching. And you have interviewed and spent time with many people who I would follow to the ends of the earth. <laughs> and I wonder what you think of the current state of influence. Oh my God, well, confident people can truly do anything even if they are morons. <laughs> That's the secret to life. I have a question about confidence men, though, in the story that you told. That yeah, doesn't sure. sound illegal. Why was he arrested? He told people to give him their watch, and they did. <laughs> That's a crime now in New York City? That's true. It's true. It's true. It's kind of consensual. Who trust me enough to give me their watch? <laughs> <laughs> um, I th well, definitely, I think you meet some people who are famous, and you can just tell, like, yeah, I know why you're famous. They have that certain something that you just really can't take your eyes off them, even when they are you know, out of hair and makeup or like slouching around in their homes or on set somewhere. Um, I, I think I said this to you when we did a kind of preliminary interview on the phone that I think- We prepared extensively. <laughs> <laughs> I think bewitching is one of the kind of nicest compliments you can give to someone or say about someone that they have so, impressed you that it's like they've cast a spell. So I feel like I'm absolutely susceptible to confidence, men and women, and I aspire to be one. I mean, do you think it's something that we can like achieve? Or are these people that you've spent time with that were like, when I was a child, I always knew I was special? I think you can achieve it. I really think that, that you can do it. You probably have to have something a little bit wrong in your brain to want to, <laughs> but I don't think it's harder than like learning to hit a baseball, say. I think with enough time and dedication, anyone can learn to be confident. You just fake it, and then it, you forget that you're faking it, and you become a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and then you start a cult, and then you get on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's been the interesting thing about all of these communities, like, and I think we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, too, but the idea of, like, for so many people, when you really think about what utopia is, it's often like an escape from government, you know, whether that means you are like a libertarian utopist or you want to like live by your values and you don't think that the country you live in like encapsulates those values. Um, and a lot of way, like the easiest way to do that is to just follow one guy. Mm -hmm. Like you make one decision, which is to follow this one person and the rest of it comes like pretty easily. And then where it starts getting, wherever utopia trips up is like, their leader goes crazy or dies, or they're like, oh no, now we gotta do everything by consensus. And then it's like not a utopia anymore because then you have governance again. And then you have like eight hour long meetings to decide everything. Um, and then, you know, that can still be communal living, but it's like, that's where it gets difficult. Like government, pleasing, pleasing people is hard. Like living together is hard. I think it also relates to like introverts and extroverts. And it kind of makes me crazy how now it seems very in vogue to identify as an introvert. And it's like, 
extroverts really get things done, and there's a reason they're so popular. No offense to any introverts out there. And I don't even know if I necessarily believe in introverts versus extroverts. It's all a spectrum. Everyone, yeah, you can agree with every single thing on the list. It's like, I like to spend time alone sometimes, but I don't know that that makes me introverted. Um, but I think we should you know, stop rebelling against our natural instincts to like be engaging and popular and fun. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being popular. <laughs> I know that's my pet peeve when someone really charismatic is like, I also like to be alone. It's like, cause good, otherwise you'd be a, a psychopath. That's like, we all, yeah. we come into this world alone. Like, it's fine. Should we talk about yeah. the most extroverted man I've ever heard of? Walt Disney? Yeah. So. Can I, can I ask you another? So, um, Katie assigned me a book. <laughs> um, why did you want to talk about Disney? Well, as everyone can probably tell from the way I walked out here, my family and I are members of the Disney Vacation Club. We are, it's a higher class of people. Um, and so, I, so I just, I, don't, I wouldn't even say like I love Disney. I'm not Disney obsessive. My parents aren't Disney obsessive. We became members of the DVC because, <laughs> which is a timeshare program for Disney properties, um, because my mom really hates to waste money. And so she knew if she set up a system whereby she was paying for a vacation every year, um, she would never let herself not take that vacation. So she's like, okay, we'll do this, and then I know I'll have to take a vacation every year because I'm already paying for it. So we started going to Disney, I guess, every year maybe, every other year. Um, like a week? Oh, no, not a week. Disney's so expensive. You can't afford to go there for a week for a couple <laughs> days. Um, so I just have always been kind of fascinated by how well-run it is, and if you go to Disney, you know, over several years, you will see it kind of grow and improve. And I gotta say, it never gets worse. You never go and think like, this isn't as good as it was last time. It's always a little bit better somehow. Like they get better at managing lines. The rides are a little bit better. So I was very interested in that. And then on one of our trips, we went to the town called Celebration that is, I don't even know how to describe it. I guess it's like a kind of Disney company town, but you don't have to work for Disney to live there. Um, it's it's a lot. Uh, and I, I heard about this book, Married to the Mouse, from a friend of mine who is, I guess, similarly kind of bewitched, if you will, by Disney. And he's just like, everything in this book is insane. Uh, you should read it. And we did. And it is truly insane. The founding of Disney, the Disney World specifically, how it came about will blow your mind and make you think that you can do anything. Well. Okay, so you said you like weren't a Disney fan, but like spending all this time there throughout your childhood, like did you become a Disney well, fan? Were you like in awe of it? I would say I like Disney probably about as much as the average person. I'm not. I don't have a Mickey That's Mouse shirt. A lot. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I love Coco. We all love Coco. Um, you know, I'll. I love to see a Disney movie because I also like to. You know, I like to play the hits. I like to bet on the favorite. I know that a Disney movie will probably be very well done, extremely calculated to make me laugh here, make me cry here. I like to see people do what they are good at, um, and that's what Disney World is, but it's to like a psychotic degree. So is it like, is it a utopia? I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think, because I know the premise of the podcast is really that like utopias don't exist, can't exist. So I was like, uh-oh, we've just disproven it because <laughs> Disney is a utopia. But it's only a utopia for certain people, so I guess that by definition maybe makes it not a utopia because the 
I actually didn't know this until reading this book. Maybe it's really obvious to people, but apparently uh, a tourism-based economy, uh, most people will have extremely low wages and there's very little potential for growth. So the workers at Disney, when this book was written, I think three quarters of them maybe required some form of like state assistance, food stamps, subsidized housing, something with medical care. Uh, so it's definitely not a utopia for everyone, but I would say for maybe like eight Disney executives, they have absolutely created a utopia on Earth. <laughs> and so, yeah, what about the story of the founding of Disney World oh is so God. crazy? Can we maybe just go back and forth and say a couple facts that jumped out at us? Sure. Okay. So Welcome to our book club. <laughs> So there is a 1967 Florida law on the books, I believe to this day, that gives Disney the legal authority to open and run a nuclear reactor on Disney property. <laughs> but you know what? There's no one I would trust more to run a nuclear reactor. <laughs> if you've been to those parks, they like run like clockwork. <laughs> and they'd be guarded really well. Um, yeah, I, of course, my favorite thing was that, so, oh man, I feel like if you tug at one thread of it, I'm like, oh no, do I have to tell the whole story? You have to talk for an hour, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, um, so, the interesting thing about Disney World was that originally, in Walt Disney's mind, Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, was supposed to be a true community, and like people were supposed to live there, and there were going to be schools, and there were going to be trams, and it was going to be a real um, community. And it's really interesting, the time that he was dreaming about this and working on it, it was very much inspired by the 1964 New York World's Fair. And also in the 60s, there were all these major uprisings in American cities. So everyone was like, oh my god, American cities are in crisis. And so he hired these consultants to basically kind of do this podcast and like go back and look at all the planned communities throughout American history. And they had, um, one of their takeaways was that they are all, they all fail because they look backwards, they don't look forwards. And you see this a lot in the, like, for example, the United community is like, we're all gonna be farmers and we're gonna grow our own food and we're gonna live off the land. And then it didn't work. They had to like engage with commerce and they had to like make spoons and like <laughs> be modern people. So everyone like, and Biosphere too, they were like, we can be like, live off the land like they used to. <laughs> Um, and so that, like, looking back is not necessarily the best foundation. And then the other thing that they suggested is kind of what we were talking about before. They were like, you need to find a way to circumvent government. And they absolutely did. That is how they <laughs> created the uh, Reedy Creek Improvement District. Yeah. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Disney basically has its own private government that operates within Florida. Oh, we should also say, I think I'm probably misremembering every single detail of this book. Oh, yeah. None of this is... It's a podcast about failure, y'all. <laughs> it's fine. Don't take my word for it. Google it yourself. Um, but basically, Disney has its own private government within Florida. Um, and I think the only things that they are, have to kind of run by the state are they have to pay some form of taxes, property taxes, although they also have ways to try to get around that, and elevator inspections, which, okay. Um, and everything else they do themselves. They have their own emergency services, fire department, um, roads, what else is there? They don't have a private, they, they have like a legion of security guards that they have hired instead of a police force. Mm -hmm. They can also um, use eminent domain. Yeah, like, it's crazy. It's completely, completely bananas. And the other thing about the security guards is they 
look exactly like regular cops, um, but they can't arrest people because they are not cops. But they have they have like cars with flashing lights. They wear what appears to be a cop's uniform, and there was a transcript. Um, from a court case, I think in the 90s, where someone was asking, okay, well, if you're not a cop, why are you dressed like a cop? And they were like, this is a costume. Like, Mickey wears. <laughs> this is not a uniform. I am in the costume of a, some sort of authority figure. It's like, you're a cop. You have a cop's radio on. You're driving a cop car. It's totally, and then the reason they were allowed to do all this is because Disney was like, we are building the experimental pro like prototype city of the future, community of the future, um, we need, the line was, we need to make sure we don't have legislation so we can keep this in a constant state of becoming, which is just like a crazy, like, goopian mantra. And everyone was like, yes! And then the Epcot opens, and there are no, like, there's no residences! Like, no one, and, and yeah, they just, like, didn't make good on their promise um, at all. And so, of course, you know, I'm... Uh, visiting from Oakland today, and tech is taking over all of our cities, and you could just as easily replace Disney with, like, Amazon or Google or, um, you know, any other giant company that comes in and wants to make a deal with local government. Um, it's just really interesting because at the end of the day, you don't really know what you're, they, they can talk a big game, mm -hmm. and you don't really know what you're gonna get. Mm -hmm. And the whole, the whole theme of this, it's called Married to the Mouse, and it's all kind of about like the marriage between um, Orlando and Walt Disney, and the chapters are serendipity, seduction, secrecy, marriage, growth, conflict, abuse, negotiation, therapy, which leads to a lot of questions about Richard E. Fogelsong's uh, personal life. <laughs> it's like, very much about um, these marriages that we're seeing, or I guess these like courtships we're mm -hmm. seeing all around us today. Well, one thing that I think is, seems different, at least on the surface, and maybe that, you know, I don't know how it would manifest, but uh, when Disney was scouting for this land, they chose Orlando because it was where a bunch of roads met. Um, but it was very underdeveloped. It was pretty much just like citrus groves, is my understanding. And so they were able to basically invent these laws out of thin air that said, you can do whatever you want on this random orange grove land. Um, and I think it's, Amazon has had trouble, say, in New York, because they're trying to move into a city that is already very well established. And so maybe the secret to building a successful utopia for your executives is that you have to do it somewhere where not many people live already. Uh, and Disney definitely figured that out. And they also had a scheme where they were like, it has to straddle two counties so that we can play the counties off one another. And yeah, like Mom said it was okay. Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah. But it's interesting. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because I feel like we're also seeing it not just necessarily in our cities with big companies moving in, but like with new smart cities mm -hmm. that are developing. Um, I was recently... Uh, given this guide to Songdo, new city Songdo, which is one of these like smart cities that's popping up all over the world. This one um, is in uh, Korea, I believe. Yeah, it's in South Korea, and it's supposed to be basically like an experimental prototype community of the future that was built from scratch, and they're like, this will have all the amenities, and it will have like businesses and, and, and shopping centers, and it's like empty, like no one is there right now. Huh. Um, and so I think we're seeing this, like, 
I was, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to go on a trip to Dubai where there's just like growth, 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 and all these like empty buildings with mm -hmm. no one in them. Um, and they're like, there's nothing there before. Like we can just build there. Um, but I guess the thing that is still, I mean, it's literally awesome. Like it's so incredible that these cities can just get built, but it's also kind of scary when it's built by a singular vision of a mm -hmm. for-profit company who is trying to be in a constant state of becoming. <laughs> you know? No? Totally. So I guess, like, how did it feel for you on the ground being in Disney World and Celebration? Like, did it feel uncanny? Absolutely. It feels definitely like nowhere else you've ever been, but it is very relaxing. Now that I know I can't get arrested by a real cop there, it's going to be even more relaxing. <laughs> um, you know, everything is hyper clean, everything is power washed. Uh, in the book, they mentioned that Disney built pneumatic tubes under the ground that whisk all the trash away to behind Splash Mountain. Um, so it's like, the oh, really? yeah, <laughs> the trash isn't even there. Um, it's, but it, it definitely doesn't feel real. So it's, you know, I think it boils down to, are you the kind of person who can walk into like a completely scrubbed clean empty town and think like, I love it, I wanna buy a hot dog here, which is me, or do you see that and think like, hmm, I think probably a lot of bad things had to happen for this town to be so nice. I mean, it's so interesting, because as I was reading about celebration particularly, and thinking about these new towns and thinking about um, places like all the new developments in Dubai, I was thinking about this idea of like the new uncanny city. And it reminds me of the story of Chandigarh that we told in the podcast that like it was built from the ground up. It was built from scratch and it was kind of like weird and empty in the beginning. But now it's extremely populous and by, depending on your metric, very successful. Um, and I think with, you know, you could look, I'm sure Europeans coming to America in like the 1800s are like, oh, it's so weird. It's like fake Europe and like all their trees are so small. And you know, like our, our White House is a knockoff of, um, you know, the government building in Dublin. Like, what? yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But like, and, and you know, all of our college campuses are ripping off like, in, you know, Cambridge and Oxford. Mm -hmm. Like, we live in a land of knockoffs, and just how long does it take? <laughs> how long does it take for something to feel real? Especially because, like, the world population is growing all the time, and we have to build new things. And it's so hard not to be like, Ugh, it feels new. Like, new things have to get built, and I don't know what the right aesthetic is. Mm -hmm. But I guess the thing that struck me about Celebration was everyone's like, oh, it's like a Truman show. It's so weird. Yeah. And they were like working so hard to make it like as authentic as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even dictating, they had these like draconian, well, what seems to us, these draconian covenants that are like, you can't paint your house XYZ color. And, you know, it has to be XYZ style, which in some ways was a way to keep it like uniform mm -hmm. and authentic. And they also had other like worse covenants, like you can't put any political stickers on your on your house. You could have one sign. You had to take it down two days after the election. Exactly. <laughs> you can't have more than three people sleeping in a bedroom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what if you had quadruplets? Can't do it. Um, so it's just like, you know, when I was talking with Michael Beirut, who might be here, who worked on um, the, the signage for Celebration, and he was saying, oftentimes you just need to wait for the trees to grow. 
Like, it just is that when you go to a new place, the trees feel too short. And like everything that that entails, yeah. like, everything is just like totally. too shiny. And mm -hmm. then it will become like the new authentic one day. Mm -hmm. I like that when God made the world, he was probably like, oh, <laughs> weird. Everything is so small. But now he's like, oh my God, it looks great. <laughs> Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I really think that this is like celebration is going to be the number one. It's going to like the number one hipster tourist design destination. Has a like great Cuban years. restaurant. Really? Yeah. Or they did when I went. Really? Like yeah. okay. So what did you see when you went to celebration? A great Cuban restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, really, the only other thing that kind of sticks in my head besides all of the homes are sort of done in. I don't remember how many styles, but there there's a set number of styles, and they didn't want it to be all like the exact same kind of house. So it's like, you can have one of these four kinds of houses. And they're not from the same time period, but they're very distinct architecture. So I remember seeing that. And I remember that, at least in my mind, a lot of the streets were named Celebration. So it was like Celebration Road and Celebration Avenue and Celebration Lane. Um, I hope I'm not misremembering that because I think it's very creepy. And if I invented <laughs> it, then it's a lot less interesting. <laughs> but I, you know, it honestly looked a lot like Disney World. Which I kind of guess is what they were sort of going for. Um, although technically, they had to sort of annex that from Disney property in some way because since there were going to be real people living there who were not Disney employees, 
uh, Disney did not want to be involved with real residents who have opinions and who would like to have civil rights. And it's like, no, we don't like that. Um, so, so Celebration is like kind of run separately, but it was imagineered by Disney. So it still has that kind of slightly uncanny look about it. Um, but like, you know, I like to go to a weird place. I don't really mind. I don't think I'd want to live there because I'm sure it's too expensive, but I'll absolutely go have dinner there. But you'd have, Katie found a list of, people, of like notable residents oh, of yeah. Celebration. You'd have them from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, so I think it was taken off Wikipedia because they weren't sourced, but I started to Google some and I believe them. Oh, I'm not gonna remember any of them now. Do you remember any? It was uh, an Atlanta Braves baseball player. Yeah. Um, a, a woman who designs for Disney and Hot Topic, and she makes sort of like Hot Topic sexy versions of Disney princesses. <laughs> uh, two prominent Brazilians. Yes. Um, like a talk show host or something. Yeah, from yeah. Um, I feel like sport, sporty people liked it. But, well, like, here's the thing. So Celebration, was supposed to be kind of like, so Michael Eisner, who, was, who had taken over the Disney company, was like a genuine design buff. And he was investing in designer architecture before it was like cool, before architecture was a thing, before we all were like, oh, this is an important building. This is like a Michael Graves building. He was, he kind of had the, can, he had the, the, uh, it was like, a, it was a really prescient decision to, to spend the extra money to hire really, really, really famous architects to come make amazing work in Celebration. So Celebration is like a postmodernist dream. There's like a Michael Graves post office and a Philip Johnson town hall and a Cesar, um, Cesar Pelli um, movie theater and a Venturi Scott Brown bank. And they're like all right next to each other. It's totally cool. And it was meant to attract uh, hipster idiots like me who were like, ooh, I want to see the cool architecture. And it was meant to have like this kind of like, ooh, upper crust um, clientele that was supposed to be like decidedly different than the people who were obsessed with Disney. And, you know, one of its flaws was it never managed to get out of that like, oh, it's a Disney property. Yeah. And like their, their school was supposed to be like oh, really yeah. experimental with no grades and like, uh, with like narrative reports yeah. and the parents were like, what is this shit? Like, it well, it's crazy. Like half the parents were really into it and that's why they moved there. And then the other half were like, my child doesn't have a grade. <laughs> um, so they basically made a regular school then. And it just sounds, anytime you do anything with the school, that's why you can't have a utopia because parents are going to complain about the school no matter what you do. <laughs> it's true. Always, it's always a problem indoctrinating the next generation because if you didn't come to it organically of your own volition, it's really hard to believe in like this, this lifestyle that you have or the principles that have been adopted all around you. And in the course of working on the series, I thought a lot about Amish communities and like mm. the necessity of the Romspringa and being like, let people make this decision themselves. Because as soon as you're like, this is the way we do things, you don't have a choice. Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that you would be susceptible to moving into utopia to following someone into one or starting one yourself. Oh yeah, I'm like, every story I do, I'm like, this is amazing, <laughs> this is like a great idea, I'm obsessed with this now. Um, yeah, totally, totally, totally. Although I feel like, I mean the dream of utopia, is, is, it's like, it's, it's really, 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 really compelling. Um, to think that you could live in a world that's better than the one 
that's around you. Like you have a choice. Like this, this nation that you've been born into, this world you've been born into that just feels, sometimes I think like, where could I turn? Like, where could I go that would feel like peaceful and right? To be able to carve out your own space is like incredibly intriguing. And even though everything we're talking about with Disney sounds really nefarious and scary now, like, I kind of want to believe it came originally from a good place. I don't know. Well, like, the thing I keep thinking of all the time. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, the thing I keep thinking of all, like, yes, it was a company, and they wanted to make money, and they wanted to sell property, and, like, Disney movies weren't doing so great at a time, and they, like, wanted to, you know, make money off the theme parks. But the thing I'm, I, the comparison I think of all the time is Victor Gruen, the creator of the shopping mall. Like, mm. he wanted to create this space that would be, like, pedestrian-friendly, and he also thought, like, people would live there, and there would be schools, and there would be a town square, and he was, he was Viennese, and he was trying to recreate Vienna and give it to the American suburbs. And then, um, also in the 60s, he started, like, engineering downtowns to be more like malls, and it was his way of making peace. And then he learned that downtown is not a mall, and you can't just perfectly engineer it. And he uh, eventually grew to hate malls and like rage against them very, 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 very publicly. And he was like, oh no, what have I done? And I keep comparing like the original vision for the mall, for the original vision for Epcot, that everyone like dreams of these little like mm, perfect enclosed spaces. It's so funny to me that you are looking for the good in it because I feel like when I read this book and everyone, pretty much everyone in this book, especially in the 60s, is a white man. Many of them are named Bob. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking, it's amazing what they managed to accomplish, that they convinced Florida to just let them have their own separate government in Florida. And it's like, what if you didn't have to be a white man to do that? If they had had like the best minds from every different kind of person working, it would have been so much bigger and scarier and better. Like I shiver to think what they would have invented if they had had like the smartest black woman into, you know, like they were really limiting it to this one population and they still accomplished a lot. So if they had opened it up, they probably would have all of Florida by now would be Disney World. It would be But so are you like, thank heavens this all happened so that like I could be like, my family could really have like our vacation time and our bonding time together. Well, I, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's great. I'm very impressed by what they did. I think it's probably ultimately bad, but we're doing a lot of things that are bad. And at least this is, you know, really fun to go on a ride. You feel like you're in outer space. You can have dinner in Canada without going to Canada. It's so nice. Katie says that Canada has the best Epcot food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Le Cellier for dinner. You do need a reservation. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I kept coming back to that point, like, wow, I really wish we hadn't limited the brain power because I kind of, you know, maybe it's a, a nihilistic point of view, but it's like, I wonder how truly freaking crazy we could have made this. Could have been really, really, really bad and insane. And now it's only like pretty bad and insane. What, they, what they've managed to pull off, the scam they've got going. Do you think like, I guess when we were talking about things that are uncanny in the beginning and then they like mature into something we're used to. I feel like now we've gotten to the point where like, it's a tradition, oh yeah, like everyone goes to Disneyland mm -hmm. and it's like, it is America. And it, do you think it's like still a scam that they're running? I think it's still a scam they're running because they still are operating by basically the same set of laws that they were given in 1967. I think if they, I, mean, I would be so curious if they said, actually these laws were like unconstitutional, we are revoking <laughs> all of them. I wonder what Disney would do because it would cost them so much more to run that park. 
um, what would happen to my family's Disney Vacation Club points? Would they drop in value? Would they skyrocket in value? Wait, how do they work? How do they I don't know, and my mom can't explain. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, a game in the it's like I need her social security number to access anything related to the Disney Vacation Club points. They are tightly guarded. Whoa. It's nuts, yeah. But <laughs> I, I also think, speaking of you know, why people kind of keep trying to do these utopias, I think that it's really appealing to think that we can to start completely clean slate instead of civilization developing as it has for all of human history kind of haphazardly. It's like, okay, what if we now take all that knowledge we have and apply it in a really logical way and you need a confidence man or an extroverted young lady um, <laughs> to say like, oh wait, I know exactly how we should do this. And I think that their excitement will probably it could carry you pretty far yeah. if you really believe something. That's the thing. I think if you if you feel you're selling people a lie, it won't be as good. But if you are crazy enough that you can convince yourself, like, I actually know how to run the perfect city, then you could probably get some people to believe you and try to make that city. And I don't think it'll work. Well, that's the thing. Like, I want to believe that we've spent so long trying this and living together that we're learning lessons and that, like, we could maybe apply them and we could create homes and communities and cities Look that are that. better. But <laughs> people are terrible. No, I know. we can't do that. This is what I keep coming back to over and over and over again. It's just like, it's hard to build community because people are. I have a friend from the South who when I complain about things that are you know, just minor, minor complaints, he says, you will complain about a birthday cake. And I feel like there are always people out there who will complain about a birthday cake, and that's why we can't have a utopia. <laughs> Because people like me. <laughs> no, well, okay, this brings me to like the other interesting thing that I wish we had gotten to talk about in the podcast uh, from my other favorite book that I read for this series. Um, it's called Dreaming the Biosphere by Rebecca Ryder. Also, like, gorgeous because it zooms out and talks about the crazy story of Biosphere 2 and just, like, all of the uh, societal trappings around it. Oh, by the way, the, the funder of Epcot was brothers with the funder of Biosphere 2. They were <gasps> both the Bass family. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many crazy overlaps. But the other thing was, like, people... So after the biosphere experiment was over, some of the people who had participated in it went around to like NASA and scientists who had done, um, you know, uh, polar expeditions and deep sea expeditions and other places where people had been in confined space with each other. And they were like, is what happened in the biosphere, all this infighting, was it normal? And everyone was like, textbook. They know it's going to happen. It's called the three-fourths phenomenon, and it just means an Three-fourths through any mission, everyone just gets at each other's throats. Like, no matter how well they get along, <laughs> they, they separate into groups. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, like, how they feel about mission control and where they feel like this mission is going. Um, but it's really, really sad. And even if they know it's coming and they can study it and, like, you just can't prepare for it. We just fight. That's not sad. That is the Real Housewives of New York City <laughs> going on a trip to Mexico, to France. <laughs> that's what happens. It's, uh, that's incredible television. That's not sad. And you're like, this is the spice yeah, I love, You're talking about it and it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are they fighting about now? Uh, I also, I, I know that if I ever did anything like that, I can convince myself of things so easily that I would absolutely be the one who's like, I think mission control is doing something wrong. Like, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I really 
think that like <laughs> they're doing something. Do you guys feel that way? Accidentally sowing discord. I know I'd be the one. <laughs> totally. And maybe I'd be right, but probably not. You'd just be the confidence one. <laughs> You'd be confident about it. Mm -hmm. Does anyone have any questions? I feel like, were we supposed to get little cards? We can just keep talking about Disney World, too. Yeah, we can, we can keep going. <laughs> can we can talk about Real Housewives. That was a whole tangent <laughs> we didn't even get to. Thank you. Um, all right. Thank you, by the way, for asking questions. Uh, favorite episode of the season? Um, do you have a favorite? Yeah. What's your favorite? My favorite, I think it was actually the first episode, was that Jamestown? Because I am just so interested in people who go somewhere where, you know, came over, didn't really know what they'd find, uh, but were confident enough that whatever they found, they'd be able to make a successful town out of it. And it's like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. It's really hard to make a town. And that's what they found out. Um, I'm, I could listen to stories of people trying and failing to create towns all day long. <laughs> Especially when narrated by Avery's velvety voice. <laughs> the, the Jamestown one was like so upsetting, so upsetting, and also just more upsetting that we don't talk about it, you know? I feel like, especially in the Bay Area, there's this, like, fail culture. Like, fail harder, fail better. Like, keep failing. Fail, oh, fail, no. fail until you make it. Oh, and then no one actually talks about when people start, like, eating each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I think my favorite episode is Biosphere 2, just because, also, I went there for this bullshit conference, and it felt, I kept calling it the Fire Festival conference. I was just like, what are we doing here? What are we studying? And they were like, here are your rooms. And they were like, horrible. There was no heat. It was so, but it was like so perfect to have that conference in the biosphere um, as just this like monument to failure. And it's also like, failure or not, it's gorgeous. It's like a really amazing structure that they built out there, out there in the middle of the desert. And so like, Everyone should go see it if they have the chance to see it and like enjoy the not story they are telling you. Like enjoy, because it's still owned by Ed Bass. Like they're still protecting themselves, um, and like I don't, I don't blame them. They're like trying their darndest to make it make sense and make it work. But that is certainly my favorite. They're all my, they're all my children. <laughs> I love them all. Okay, here's a question. This is hard. I'm gonna ask you. Oh no. What would your utopia look like? Oh my god. Sorry. Um, okay, it's located in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I have to say none of the utopias that were covered in the series necessarily appealed to me. I think that, I, I guess, what's the difference between utopia and heaven? It seems to be that... Utopia is all about creating the perfect conditions for society to thrive, and then maybe heaven is where everyone is actually happy. But I don't think you could get that on Earth. I don't, even if you created the most perfect place, I don't think people would live perfect lives there. So, you know, I guess it would be like maybe on the beach, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it would also have snow. <laughs> That's my utopia. <laughs> beach with snow. <laughs> I mean, so when I was Googling around about this, there's a ship that's, I think, going to launch in 2021 called Utopia, and it's built by this development company, uh, these developers, and they're like, this is a completely new concept in luxury living. Like, you can buy a condo 
on this boat and it's like a normal condo except every morning you wake up in a new place <gasps> and it's full of like <laughs> it's full of, of shopping malls and restaurants and you just like you're on do you have like a couple million dollars bring a whole new pocket this could be yours I'd love to take a press trip <laughs> no no I told him I'm like I need to do it um but no it's crazy it's really but it's really interesting because I feel like it gets like the vid everyone should watch the video for this um this ship called Utopia. It's totally crazy because it's full of all these people with European accents being like, What is Utopia? Oh my god. Can a ship <laughs> be a community? But also it's just like what will I mean, yes, I know everyone on the boat is a billionaire, but like how will they do their jobs? How will they work? How will they be in touch with their family? And I presume that they're just going to have to like fly around and meet Utopia and like fly back out to wherever they need to go. And I think it really addresses this idea of like impermanence in Utopia. Like of course Disneyland is a Utopia because you go there for a little bit at a time before it gets like boring and terrible and people start fighting. And when you have like a, <laughs> like a limited, when you can get it in little bits, that's what keeps it like, that's, I mean, not revelatory, that's what keeps it special. So I feel like it's a Utopia of, of limits. Thank you to Katie Weaver for joining me on this utopian evening, and thank you to the 92nd Street Y for hosting us. This live event was produced by Jill Dennard. Nice Try's producer is Megan Kinane. Our associate producer is Diana Buds. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Gautam Shrikashin is our engineer. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Avery Truffleman, and utopias do not exist. <laughs>